amen. Hey, before you take a seat, would you high five two people? Tell them happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. And then stay standing. Actually, I messed that part up. They told me to do one thing and I messed it up. I knew that was going to happen. That's what happened. Stay standing. We're going to read God's word together. Yikes. Okay. Off to a hot start. At least Jesus is good. Okay. Nehemiah, thank you. Thank you. Nehemiah chapter five. If you haven't been here uh, for this series or you're just jumping in for this series or you're watching, you know, from the lake or the beach and you're tuning in, we are studying the book of basically Ezra and Nehemiah and we'll get into why here in a second. And today we're going through Nehemiah chapter five. So I'm gonna read some verses from Nehemiah chapter five while we're standing and then we'll get started. So Nehemiah chapter five, verse one through 13. Let's read this together. There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, we, our sons and our daughters are numerous, so let's get some grain so that we can eat and live. And others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and homes to get grain during this famine. And still others were saying, we've borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards, and we and our children, they're just like our countrymen and their children, but we're subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Nehemiah says, I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. And after seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and the officials saying to them, each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called this large assembly against them and I said, we've done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners, but now you're selling your own people and we have to buy them back. So they remained silent and they couldn't say the word because the Holy Spirit got all over them under conviction. Then I said, what you're doing is not right. Should you not walk in the fear of God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? Even I, as well as my brothers and, and, and servants, we've been lending them money and grain. So please, let's stop charging this interest. Give them back their fields, give them back their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses. Give them back to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine and fresh oil that you've been assessing them. They responded, we'll return these things and inquire nothing more from them. We will do as you say. So I summoned the priests and I made everybody take an oath to do this. I also shook the folds of my robe and I said, may God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep this promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. And the whole assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did as they had promised. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, thanks be to God. Okay, now you can grab a seat and let's get into it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let me introduce myself. We haven't met. My name is Caleb and I'm one of the pastors here. My technical responsibility here is I oversee our teenagers, which if any of you knew me as a teenager, you would find the irony in that as well. But nonetheless, it's what I get to do and what I am responsible for. Um, okay, so I kind of mentioned this briefly, uh, but I just, I wanna let you know kind of what we're, we're doing with this Nehemiah 5 series. But before I do, it's Independence Day. So happy Independence Day weekend, everyone. I, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take this entire week. This is the promise I've made. And I'm gonna find and contact all of my British friends 
And I'm going to ask their advice, and then whatever they suggest, I'm going to do the exact opposite. All week long, in the name of Jesus, just to celebrate my independence. I'm kidding. Not a funny joke. Anyway, so... Uh, no, but seriously, it, it would be easy for me to just kind of move past it. And I know that if you haven't gotten a chance to go to one of our campuses, 14 campuses all across the state, we have a very diverse church and it's awesome. When you have a very diverse church, anything, even something as simple as Independence Day brings up lots of different thoughts, opinions, reactions from a lot of different people. So instead of trying to get into that, I just want to say this. Um, it is a giant blessing to be able to get in my truck and to drive here and to just worship God with you guys without having to worry about a whole lot. And I'm grateful for that here in the United States of America. So before we move forward, I just wanted to thank God for our freedoms that we have to celebrate and worship together. And I know we have a lot of uh, you know, people in our church who are military and family of military, and I wanna say thank you for that. It's a big deal for us to be able to celebrate that as well. So, all right. What we're doing in this series is we are taking the, the several hundred, you know, thousand year old framework of the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is basically the story of the Hebrew people that have been in captivity in Babylon for several years, and they are being led by God back to uh, the Jerusalem to actually build the city of God. So we're taking that literal story that happened, and we're using this framework and we're laying that over our own day and age and time and life here today in America in 2021 because Jesus taught us that our mission in partnering with him was to build earth to pursue culture in a way that brings the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven. So they were building a literal city of God. And we are building a spiritual and figurative city of God as we wait on the return of Jesus. And so here on Independence Day weekend, we are gonna be looking at the story of Nehemiah chapter five. And what I've done is I have pulled from Nehemiah chapter five, six observations from this chapter that I believe are also observations you could find in the entire biblical narrative to celebrate and to encourage us as we do a spiritual rebuild of the city of God here in today's age. Okay, so here's what I wanna do. If you're taking notes, if you're kind of one of those people that likes to um, title things so you can know what they're called or you could go back to it, here's the title of, of the next you know, 27 minutes of what I'm gonna try to say. Good leadership, bad culture, and the kingdom of God's most valuable asset. Okay, good leadership, bad culture, and the kingdom of God's most valuable asset. I'll just warn you now, these points are long and wordy because that's just how I am. That's how I think. It's a mess up here most of the time. So I will go slowly. Observation number one from Nehemiah chapter five. The pinnacle of God's creative expression and the most valuable asset in his kingdom are human beings created to bear his image in the earth. The pinnacle of God's creative expression, the most amazing thing that God ever made. It's not the beach, it's not the Grand Canyon, it's not Mount Everest, it's the person sitting beside you. It's where God put most of his attention into. It's the thing that he ordained to bear his image in the earth. Humans were given the greatest responsibility of all of God's creation to represent him here on planet earth. That's why sins against humanity are so egregious because God created people in his image. Now, let me tell you an embarrassing story about myself. I have several, so this one was an easy one to remember. 
How many of you, show of hands, are uh, dog people? Say dog people. All right, amen. Praise the Lord. How many of you, fellas, you're dog guys? Like, yeah, I'm a dog. I'm a dog man. Dog man's a weird word, but you know what I'm trying to say. I'm a dog guy. Yeah, same. I grew up with spaniels. We taught, we, we did, we, we taught them to, you know, retrieve things. We did a little bird hunting. It was awesome. I loved our spaniels. So when I got married, one of the first things they tell you is, hey, do you want to have kids? Yeah, well, you should get a dog. It'll help you be responsible, yada, yada, yada. So we did it. We, you know, fell for the company line. We bought our first house. We got a dog. Now, I love this dog. This dog did everything with me. I took it swimming. I took it hiking. I taught it. I took it hunting. I taught it to, I taught it to do everything, right? I would take this dog everywhere and do everything. Loved this dog. This was my dog. My wife dealt with this dog, got along with this dog, but it is, it's very clear. This was my dog, and I loved it. Only problem is this dog shed like the abominable snowman, okay? It was horrible. And my wife and I both equally share the cleaning responsibility at our house. We're both doing the same amount of work to clean up after this dog. And so we were both frustrated and aware of how much shedding this dog was, you know, happening. What I'm trying to say is my wife does it all and she was getting, she's going crazy about it. So what happened was we had our first child. Now, when we had our first kid, it was fine. We still had enough energy, both of us, who were both doing all the cleaning and sharing all of that responsibility. We both had enough energy to take care of our child and to clean up after our dog. And we had our second child. And when the second kid comes along, what they don't tell you is that you basically just need to light your house on fire and start over. Because nothing matters anymore. Don't buy anything new ever again, because it doesn't matter. You hardly have time to care for these children. You definitely don't have time to care for this dog as well. Well, then we had our third child. And my wife, in no uncertain terms, sat down with me and said, in the name of Jesus, I'm not cleaning up after you and your children and this dog again. You gotta pick. You can have this dog or you can have this life that we've made here. And I prayed, I had to pray. I'm, I'm embarrassed, but I had to pray. But, I, but again, eventually I ended up thinking, okay, I'll pick my family and whatever. But. So I had to find a home for this dog. Now, I found the best home, okay? It's this family, they had some foster children who were having some challenges and the dog was like, got, you know, got all their anxiety out. It was, just, it was the best, they had room for it, it was the best. But here's the embarrassing part of this story, okay? I go to drop this dog off and I'm standing in the foyer of this home. God, I wish you guys could have been there. There's no way you would ever have any respect for me ever again. Not that you have any now, but you would definitely not have any later. I'm standing in the foyer of this home, all right? There's a man and his wife, and there are several children. And I have my dog sitting right here who's scared. You know, she's hiding behind my leg. I've got all of her food and everything. And they're asking me questions about this dog. What do you call her? When does she eat? Where does she sleep? And literally, I cannot bring myself to say a word. I cannot speak. I'm this emotional. I had no idea it was going to be there. All I'm thinking about is punching this guy in the face and pushing his kids on the floor and going, you cannot have this dog and calling my wife and saying, I changed my mind. I picked the dog. I love you and I'm sorry. I'll see you on the weekends. No, but I didn't do that. <laughs> I didn't do that. I went through with it. But I went through with it in a way that I couldn't, you know, I just could, I couldn't talk that much because I was just so emotional. So I told the guy, I was like, I'm sorry. I know that this has been embarrassing for both of us. Take this dog. I'll call you next week, whatever. So take the dog and I go get in my truck. I swear to you, this is true. All right, I promise. You, some of you may have driven by me when this happened. I don't get from the end of his driveway to the top of his neighborhood before I have to put my truck in park, open my door and vomit because I'm crying so hard about this dog. 
I'm like, I mean, it's horrible. It was horrible. It was that embarrassing. Okay, that's how emotional I got over this dog. Okay, that same guy, me, I have the ability to get that emotional over my dog and look at a human being made in the image of God who's suffering and feel nothing. That's me. That might not be you. You might be a way better person than me. Likely you are. I'm just telling you, I have the ability to cry vomit over my dog on the side of the road and then look at a person that God made in his image who's suffering and feel nothing. This is not the result of the kingdom of God's influence on my life. This is the result of the nature of my heart that is so twisted and needs help in order to understand that God's most valuable asset in his kingdom, and as we build the city of God here on earth as it is in heaven, we have to understand that what matters most to God has to matter most to us. How many of you in here are duck hunters? Like to duck hunt? Nobody? All right, well, I like to duck hunt some. If you're down at the coast, you probably duck hunt more. There's not really a lot of ducks up here, but we do it anyway. I had no idea that ducks were federally protected birds. Some of you don't know what that means. What I mean is, if you show up and the game warden finds you coming off the lake and you have illegally harvested some ducks, you are in bad shape. They're gonna take your truck, your guns, they will, you know, you'll pay a several thousand dollar fine. I mean, it is brutal. I could stab the friend that I came duck hunting with and get legally, this is not an exaggeration, I would legally be in less trouble if I stabbed my friend on the boat ramp than if I had ducks because they're federally protected birds, right? All right, this is crazy. We can't even get federally protected babies. Hang on, this is why as Christians and those who choose to carry our cross and follow Christ, why we've got to be the ones that value people more than anybody else. Because if you leave it to countries or if you leave it to governments, they're not gonna do it. It has to be human beings made in the image of God choosing to value that which matters most to God above all else. How do you think orphanage got started? It wasn't because of countries. It wasn't because of governments. It wasn't because, it was because believers and followers of Jesus Christ who obey his teachings and see him and honor him as Lord decided that if people matter most to him, people will matter most to me. That's why hospitals got started. Because Jesus spent so much of his time caring for the poor and the sick and those who couldn't take care of themselves. And so followers of Jesus came along and said, you know what? In my day and age, when it's my turn to bear effective witness to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, I'm going to do what Jesus did. The thing that mattered most to God, that mattered most to Christ was the glory of God and the good of the world. When Jesus was asked by his disciples, disciples, plain and simple, they could have been disciples because a lot of them were just like very simple. Anyway, but he was asked by his disciples in a very Jewish culture by some very Jewish young, young men, what's the most important thing? And what he does is he affirms the Shema, right? The Deuteronomy 6, what you should do, the most important thing is you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your, you know the whole thing. And then he goes, but another thing is like it. You also must love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Jesus said everything else is commentary. The two things that are most primary are you love the Lord your God with everything you've got and then you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Do you know what the last year and a half has shown to me? 
through a pandemic and political challenges and just lots of different things. You know what it's shown to me? That we are incredible at loving our neighbor. As long as our neighbor lives in our neighborhood, votes like us, has about the same amount of money as us and just sort of looks at least a little bit like us. As long as our neighbor falls into those categories, God, we are nailing it. And you get outside of that and every one of us, no matter where you fall, you get uncomfortable with it. And this is the space where if we're gonna come around and take this biblical narrative and lay it over our lives and go, how can we build the city of God now in the way that Ezra and Nehemiah did? We must understand that the kingdom of God's most valuable asset is human beings because we were created by God in his image to rule and reign the earth. Okay, point number two. I spent about seven minutes too long on that point, so let's just move quickly through these next ones. Okay, number two, God's people were never intended to build their culture like those of the Babylonians or the Canaanites or anybody else for that matter. There must be a set-apartness of our approach toward life with God. Now, this is not just America in 2021. This is literally the story of God's people from the beginning of the Bible until Jesus came. And then when Jesus left and sent his Holy Spirit, it got a little bit better, but it's kind of the same vibe. What happens is we just, we say we want God and then we just don't. We want our own sort of thing. And so when, when God's people were first like kind of bothering God and chirping him, like we want a king, give us a king, give us a king. At that time, God had been raising and anointing and, and training up spiritual leaders that were like high moral and ethical leaders to lead them. They were called judges. There's a whole book of the Bible about it. You can go read it. And what happened is they started going, yeah, I know, God, I know. Thanks for these leaders. We just want a king because everybody else has a king. And God's like, I hear what you're saying. The only thing is, if you'll remember, every time you get in a battle with these other nations that have kings, you wipe them out and you take their land because I'm your leader and they have a king. And they're like, yeah, 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 that's awesome. We do love that. We just would like a king too, though, because they have a king and we want to be just like them. And God finally relents and he's like, okay, you can have a king. And then the king starts doing what kings do and overtaxing people and sending their sons to war and doing all of the horrible things that the other kings of the other nations did. And God's like, you had me as your leader and you chose to trade it in for a king, just like everybody else. This is our struggle, that we're called to to let Jesus and his ways, to let God in his ways instruct us and inform us of the way that we should build. And we just can't do it. We can't trust it. So we end up looking at all these other places to build our families, to build our businesses, to build our homes, to build our neighborhoods. We end up looking everywhere else and culture just cannot provide that. Okay, point number three. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah all prophesied that the true kingdom of God will come to bring a solution to our main problem. Our hearts are set in rebellion against God and his commands and his kingdom vision. Therefore, we cannot love God and our neighbor without our hearts being made new in Christ. Listen, we could build a perfect utopian society, all right? If something were to happen and all of a sudden we all just agreed on politics, right? It would literally be almost as amazing as if Christ just came back today and started preaching. Those two things, I'd be like, wow, man, it is real. It's legit. If we did that and built this perfect society where all of us got our way and did all this stuff, I promise it would fall apart in a second. Why? Because it's not just that our ideas are off. It's that our heart is set in rebellion against God. It doesn't want his ways. It doesn't want his, his, the way he values people. It doesn't want the way he thinks about money. It doesn't want the way he, we want our own way. All of our hearts are these little idol factories and they just pump them out all the time. 
and they're greedy and they're selfish and they're angry and they want what they want, right? That's what's wrong with our hearts. And in the old covenant, right? In the old Testament, what happened was God gave these, his people a set of demands, a set of instructions, a set of commandments as a way to help them build culture, but also as a way to expose to them that you can't be perfect. You can't do it. So whatever the solution was gonna be in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, it had to fix the main problem, which was what? It's that your heart stinks. You can do all the right things. The problem is your heart stinks. And Jesus is like, yeah, your heart's the problem. So Jeremiah, here's what he wrote. Here's what he prophesied, right? This is before Jesus. Here's what he prophesied. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I love this verse in a second. The Lord throws some serious shade in like a little rebuky way. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, by the way, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'm gonna put my law inside of them. I'm gonna write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And in the same way that God wrote the 10 commandments on a stone tablet, to Moses to instruct his people. God says, I'm gonna put my, my law and my instruction on your heart when you come to Christ. So you will know the way that you should walk in it. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I'm gonna put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I'll give them a heart of flesh. What Ezekiel says is basically, look, you know what the problem is? All of your hearts are like rocks and you can't really do anything with them. God can't do anything with them because they're hard, you're hard hearted. You don't want to listen. You don't like instruction. You don't want to care about people. None of you take care of each other. You don't want to do all that because your hearts are hard. So what's the problem and what's the solution? The solution is that God in Christ in the new covenant comes and he replaces our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh that's soft and able to be instructed by the Holy Spirit and able to be taught and able to repent and able to come under the conviction of God's word and go, okay, I need to do something about this. All right, point number four. God is wildly committed to justice. But justice does not occur without leaders who have integrity and a strong resolve to build what is in God's heart. One of the things I love most about this church, I love telling people I go to New Spring, is because some of the best people in the state of South Carolina that I know call this church home. And they're out in the community and they're building, you know, businesses and they're in the marketplace and they're in schools and they're they're doing all these things. They're in universities teaching. It's awesome. So here's the deal. Over this past year and a half, one of the things that I have seen God begin to do in our church and continue to do in our church is when there's a challenge that gets brought up in our communities, we're not the kind of church that just sits back and hopes somebody does something about it. We get after it. We pray and ask God, what is, what is the wisdom of the, of the Bible and our, our elders here? What does it call us to do? Okay, we're gonna get to work here. We're gonna get after it. This is what we're gonna do. We go after And I think God is just in the beginning phases starting to trust us with the ability to make a serious impact in our cultures and communities. Can I say this though? Every one of us that's about making a change out there without understanding how much our conduct matters will forfeit our witness in the community. The way, according to this text and lots of other texts in the Bible, the way that we live our personal lives will determine the amount of influence that we as believers in Jesus get to carry out in the communities. So I, would, I use this as, a, as a, an encouragement and a thank you and also a warning to those of you who are out in our communities and you're active and you're making a difference and you're changing the world. Please understand your personal holiness 
is as important as the message that you're carrying out there. If we lose our Christian witness, we lose the effectiveness of our message with other people who, they don't know about Jesus, they're just looking at the way you live your lives. They wanna know about the way you pay your taxes. They wanna pay attention to the things that your employees say about you. That's what they're using to determine whether or not your Christian message is worth following, not the message that they're gonna hear me preach on a Sunday or whatever, they're looking at you. James chapter one, verse 22, if you haven't, um, felt like you got a spanking from the Lord lately. I'd encourage you to read the book of James this week. It's very good. Seems like his spiritual gift was, you know. Anyway, James chapter one, verse 22. Here's what he says. Be doers of the word, not just hearers. Because you deceive yourself. If anybody is just a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror and then looks at himself and goes away and forgot what he looks like. Listen, Pastors on stage are the best at this because we're so good at telling you what all the problems are in your world. Oh man, I'm awesome at knowing exactly what's wrong with you and where you're in sin and all that sort of stuff. I just can't do it for myself, right? Now, I think I'm better at it than my wife does, but I think I'm pretty good at it. Anyway, so this is, this is what it's saying. It's like, here's what happens. We come to church, we sit under the word, we get in the Bible, we do our quiet, we do all these certain sorts of things and the Holy Spirit speaks to us and the word of God comes to us and convicts us and then we take it and we do nothing with it. And then eventually what happens is we've heard the truth so many times that we become numb to it and we have a hard heart and we can't do anything about it anymore. Because somebody will, you, you, you'll look at your neighbor in your heart so hard you feel nothing. You'll hear the way that Jesus talks about money and you'll have a different financial situation and instead of doing anything about it, you just feel nothing. Or you have a challenge in your marriage and you read the teachings of scripture and you just, you just feel nothing. This is our problem. This is my problem. This is what we do is we get so much word and there's so little doing anything about it that we numb ourselves to God and his truth. Okay, point number five. Some of you are not gonna like me for this one and that's okay. Our enemies are not people. Our enemies are spiritual strongholds and principalities that prevent us from seeing and valuing people the way God values them. Listen, Pick your side of the equation. I couldn't care less. The person on the other side, not your enemy. They're not. If in your mind, it's impossible for you to imagine where somebody who votes like that could also be a believer, they're not your enemy. Somebody that lives over there, somebody that does that, somebody, they're not your enemy. And what happens is we, we allow ourselves to never be able to empathize, never be able to have compassion on anyone whose scenario is different from ours. And instead, we just think, oh, well, they did, they're doing something wrong, right? That's, that's what the problem is. But the problem is the one working to stir all that up is our actual enemy who wants you under no circumstance to be able to look at somebody who speaks different, sounds different, looks different, lives in a different place, doesn't have as much or as less money and think they're the reason why something bad's happening. Because then we'll never work together to actually build the city of God. I can't work with them. They can't work with me, right? It's impossible and we end up splitting and breaking fellowship and leaving relationship with each other over issues that are like 10, 15 layers deep on the list. Who cares? Your enemies 
are not people. Paul had, look, I don't know what was going on in Ephesus at the time, but apparently it was some sketchy stuff because Paul had to write this to the Ephesians. Hey, look, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Ephesians chapter six, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. People are not your problem. We're wrestling against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness. We're wrestling and we're warring and we're fighting against the spiritual forces of evil that are in the heavenly places. If we're doing it correctly, if we are treasuring Christ above all else and we're letting his word and his teaching transform us and from that place we're getting our hands dirty to build the city of God, it's gonna be filled with all kinds of different people. All kinds of shapes and sizes and smells and sounds and looks and feel, all kinds of different people. And so my encouragement is instead of finding enemies everywhere you look, let's make space for God to bring into his family the people that we need to build the city of God. Okay, point number six, and then we'll get out of here. The kingdom of God does not, cannot, will not advance without sacrifice. Christ and his life were a true, real, not theoretical sacrifice for mankind. And our pursuit of the culture of heaven here on earth requires our commitment to self-denial and self-sacrifice just as Christ did for us. I hate, I hate with everything inside of me I hate the prosperity gospel. It says, if you do the right things, you live the right way, believe the right things, do the right stuff, you'll just have more and more and more. You'll be so blessed and healthy. Anytime you want to have kids, you just pop them out. Anytime you have a bill, it's just a money tree. It's just in the, you just got to find it spiritually somewhere, right? And we may not go to that extreme, right? We may not go to that extreme. But what I've found is that in all of us, we have these little seeds of this gospel that teaches that I can believe and teach the things that Jesus Christ came to believe and teach. And in this world, it will cost me nothing. That everybody will just like me. It'll be amazing. Everywhere I go, as I teach the things that Jesus taught and try to obey the things that Jesus commanded, I'm just gonna keep making friends everywhere. It's gonna be incredible. Or what happens is we get married, right? And we think that now that our marriage is a picture of the gospel message of Jesus Christ, that marriage is just gonna be a piece of cake. It's a walk in the park, right? Because God blessed it, it's a thing. It's like, no, the message is that if, if we are going to bear an effective, true, honest witness to the gospel message that Jesus Christ both preached and lived and that has made its way generation to generation to generation. In our day and age, we're gonna have to bear the same sacrifice that everyone who's gone before us has. It's gonna cost you something financially to follow Christ. It is, I'm sorry. It's It's gonna put a big dent in your pursuit of wealth. It's gonna cost some of your reputation if you start making your decisions according to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, it is. Following Jesus is following what he taught and what he did, and it was a sacrifice. It says that he gave up heaven to come here for the redemption of humanity. And as we look to him and as his spirit comes and works in us and teaches us and trains us, like we're about to read it about in a second, we learn to understand, okay, I guess I just wasn't made for this 70 years here. 
I can do fine, I can do some good stuff and whatever, but I guess there's just gotta be more than just statistically the 74 years that American men live because I'm supposed to sacrifice. Titus chapter two, this is my last scripture, I'm sorry, and then I'm out of here, I'm serious, I'm done. This, these three verses of scripture are like John Mayer's guitar solo in the song Gravity, okay? It's, if you haven't heard that song, I'm sorry, but it is, it's just perfect. It's like exactly the way it's supposed to sound. That's what this scripture is. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for who? All people. And what's it doing? What's that grace of God that we see in the man Jesus Christ that we receive when the Holy Spirit comes to live with us? What is it doing? It's at work training us to renounce our ungodliness, not their ungodliness, my ungodliness, it's in there. It's training me, this grace of God in Christ is training me to renounce my worldly passions. It's teaching me to say no to my flesh, to say yes to the kingdom of God. And it's teaching me and training me to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives here in this present age. While we do what? While we wait for our blessed hope, which is what? It's not our person getting in the White House. It's not, it's not, it's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who did what? Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all of our lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Good Lord, that is good scripture, man. It's that the grace of God has come, not just to convict us of our sin, which it certainly does, but it's at work in us to train us to live lives that are godly, that bear an effective witness to the testimony of Christ in this present age. So that when people look at our lives, they go, man, there's just something else about that man, about that woman. There's something else. The message of Christ is more than just what they think about for an hour on Sunday morning. They run their business like they believe in Jesus. They teach their class like they believe in Jesus. They built their company. They, they run their family. That guy is a dad like he believes Jesus is coming back. And it's not just theory, right? It's not just like by faith we access this. It's like, no, over 2,000 years, the Christian church has bore witness to the fact that we are not made for this little teeny tiny moment and that one day Christ will return and we will give an account for the way that we partnered with building the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. And your sacrifice will be different than my sacrifice. And the way that you end up living your faith out will be different than the way I live my faith out because we're all different and have different things. But we have to understand we're all, it's gonna cost us all something. So here's the homework. Okay, here's a homework question and then we're done. Question this week. Does what matters most to God matter most to me? Have I let my little, my little idol factory here in my chest run crazy for too long? Has it pumped out a vision for my life that's just, not, it's just not congruent with the teaching of scripture? And I've let it run course too long. Am I talking about or treating or thinking about people in a way that is definitely not the way the kingdom of God would call me to treat people? Does my public social media or whatever, does it bear witness to the fact that I am as a Christ follower called to value all people all right, we're gonna respond. Here's how we're gonna respond. On every campus, our band's gonna play a song. You may have heard this song, you may not have heard this song. It's not about this song. 
The way I like to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit is, is different. Sometimes I just need to think. And I just need to process and just work through some stuff before I just jump in and do something. So this morning, when they sing the song, if you just need to kind of sit and reflect for a bit, that's fine. Just sit and reflect. Sometimes I need to sing. And I need to just worship God and give him thanks for all that he's already done in this wicked heart of mine and all that he plans to do for the rest of my life and all that he's doing in my community. I just need to stand up and sing and give God thanks and pray. Sometimes there's things that God is working on and doing inside of me that I just, it requires me going and get somebody else to put a hand on my shoulder and pray for me. I need some counsel. I need some advice. Sometimes I have to come down to the altar and just lay on my face and repent because I've just been flat out wrong and I got my you know, my mail read by the text and I just not just want to be a hearer of the word. I want to be a doer. So whatever response looks like for you, as I pray, when I say amen, let's just, let's respond. Before we leave today and we go shoot lots of Chinese explosives and grill whatever sort of strange meats we're going to grill. Let's don't leave without hearing the word of God, asking the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. Is there any grievous way inside of me? And then responding. So let me pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful for your, the fact that you ordained your word to be alive and active and that right now in 2021, with a very peculiar time in human history, we can look to this ancient text and it can still offer us rebuke and exhortation and encouragement and help. Father, I'm so thankful for the generations that have gone before us and their effective Christian witness in the day and age that you sent them to. And now, God, we understand it is our turn right now that you created us and saved us and filled us with your spirit, knowing that right now we were gonna be the ones who were alive to bear effective testimony to the gospel good news of Jesus Christ. And we gladly Father, we gladly step into that responsibility, but we need your help. We cannot, without the help of your Holy Spirit, keep our eyes on Jesus and renounce our ungodliness and and, and build good culture here on earth as it is in heaven. So in the name of Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a sacrifice for the redemption of humanity, I ask, would you help us by sending your spirit to us to empower us for kingdom work. In Jesus' name, amen.